Welcome to another episode of the Day Archive Show, where we explore day history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and our guest today is Philip Crawford Jr., a retired member of the New York Bar and the author of The Mafia and the Gays and several other books. So welcome to the show, Philip. Thank you, Art. It's good to finally hook up with you. Exactly. I mean, when I first stumbled across um, one of your book titles, which you can see right next to my head, uh, The Mafia and the, and the Gays, I thought, this is going to be an interesting guy to talk to, uh, because there's so much talk about that, you know, from people who were around in the 70s and 80s. But I understand your bar experience starts in um, kind of an unlikely place um, in Lewiston, Maine. So tell me about that. What was your experience like in Lewiston, Maine? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Maine. I grew up in Kennebunk, Maine, which is in the southern tip of the state along the coast. And I graduated from Kennebunk High School in 1980 and went up to Lewiston, Maine um, uh, to attend Bates College. And that was where I'd come out in, 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 in my life. At that point, I was like about 19 years old when I came out um, in, my, in my sophomore year. And they had a little bar in Lewiston, Maine called The Sportsman, um, which was, uh, it was on a street called Bates Street. It was a dead end street. Um, and it was way at the very end of the street. It was kind of, you know, uh, an industrial zone, a, a few working class apartments, a lot of vacant lots, some parking lots, you know, some, some auto body shops and garages. And of course, by the time you'd go to the bar, you know, at, you know, 10 or 10.30 at night, you know, the place was at, you know, the, the, the neighborhood there was absolutely desolate. You know, and you just walk down this long stretch to get to this one, you know, lit building. And, 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 that, and that was my first gay bar. Um, and it was a, a bit of a scary experience. But the wonderful thing about it, it was, uh, I mean, it was a tiny, tiny place. It was about the size of a studio apartment. Um, and the thing that was lovely about it, though, is it was a total community, you know, based bar. It was an old fashioned neighborhood bar. You know, 90% of the people were regulars and locals, you know, you know, very working class. Lewiston at that time was a very, you know, generally poor to working class town, you know, with the exception of, of the campus, the college. So there's some college kids who would attend it, you know, and a few professors maybe, but, um, but it, it would, you know, no fights, everyone got along really well. And it was a very embracing community um, in all age groups, um, you know, people as young as me, you know, it's back then the drinking age was 18, you right. know, so I, you know, younger folk like me that at a time I was a young guy. And, um, and, and, and then you had like, you know, much older guys, you know, middle-aged guys and even guys in their 60s and 70s who just want some company and they'd sit at the bar, sometimes read a book, but they just wanted company and a beer. And, you know, they, they, they didn't have to prove anything to anyone, but they, they like being there. Yeah, and I, I've discovered through so many of the conversations I've had and the, um, the little towns I've visited over the years that very often in these smaller towns, the bars were kind of more all-inclusive, um, if there was a mixed racial element in the city where they were located, then the bar was the same way. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, the age range was pretty broad. Uh, in a lot of cases, they would even occasionally attract women, um, typically lesbians, but they would mm -hmm. attract women, um, which was less common in the big city bars. You know, big mm -hmm. city bars tended to be more um, racially and age segregated and gender so you would have a white male bar for people in their 30s. Um, mm -hmm. But in the small towns, they were very much a mixture of... Reflected the whole community. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you know, the thing about the sportsman, though, Maine is, I think, the whitest state in the nation, you know, so I, I, I honestly don't think I ever saw a person of color, you know, at the sportsman, but that's just because I, at that time in Lewiston, Maine, there, there just wasn't a lot of color, period, it was a really white state, right. and, um, you know, there were a few lesbians there, and they did have a dance floor, too, um, uh, very, about the size of a postage stamp, and they did have a DJ booth, um, you know, over the dance floor, but I don't even think I saw, I never saw a DJ there. I think they just played a tape a lot of the time. And the lighting system, 
and I don't know if I'm getting this right, you know, and I imagine this happens sometimes, you know, you talk to people and they're thinking about the bars they were at 40 years ago. I don't think they had much of a lighting system. I thought it was like Christmas tree lights on the ceiling that blinked <laughs> on and off, but I'm not sure if I got that right. So that wouldn't be surprising, to... um, especially in the smaller towns, because mm -hmm. they weren't making, you know, mega millions. They weren't huge uh, commercial enterprises. A lot of times the people who owned them were um, either community members or people who owned multiple other bars in the, in the area and wanted to have something for that, you know, for the community, but they weren't trying to become, you know, um, millionaires doing it. They were doing it as a, out of a sense of community and a sense exactly. of, you know, uh, obligation to the gay community that was there. Now, the sportsman, I have run across a couple of pictures of the sportsman sign um, and the building outside. And of course, I will show those along with other photographs during our interview to give people a visual perspective. But if I'm not mistaken, the sportsman's was called Sportsman's Athletic, Athletic Club. And it was not apostrophe, it was a plural. There was no apostrophe in the name. So it was some quirky plural of sportsmen, uh, sportsman's athletic club. Was that a matter of subterfuge? So people visiting during the day would not suspect it was a gay bar or was there some athletic component like it was decorated with basketballs and hockey sticks inside or? I don't think it was subterfuge. Um, I think what it was is before it became a gay bar, it used to be a straight bar. And I think, you know, like back in um, like, the, you know, because I think it had been around since the late 50s or early 60s or something. And I think at that point, it was appealing to kind of the like Lewiston used to be a mill town, used to have a lot of mills along the river. And then they all kind of shut down and that part of led to the decline of the city, the economic base. Um, but at the height of, of, of the town's economic vibrancy, when the mills were open, I think it had it was kind of more like a local men's club, like the guys after the after the mills closed would go and grab a beer. So I think at initially that bar's name was suitable for its clientele, but then when it converted to becoming a gay joint, you know, the name was just there. Um, and so it's kind of ironic in a way because uh, I, I don't think it was intentional. Now, that was the only, I'm assuming, in 1980, the only gay bar in Lewiston. Absolutely. It was the only game in town. And I think Lewiston was like the second or third biggest city in the state. Um, and yeah, that was absolutely the only game in town. And, and you know, it, it's actually, you know, where, where I, um, you know, actually met the guy who I lost my virginity to, you know, and so it's always stuck in my head about what a wonderful place it was. You know, A, it was just very welcoming to me. People, I was felt very safe there. Like, you know, I was, I was, I was allowed to just kind of slowly acclimate myself to a public community, you know, and I ended up, you know, you know, meeting this one guy, brought him back to my dorm room, actually. Um, and it, what's that? That was bold. Yes, well, I was I was very bold. I was president of the gay political organization on campus for for a year, um, so I, I was definitely out and loud and proud, you know. And um, and he was an older guy too. I mean, not that much older than me. I mean, at the time I would have been nineteen or something, and I think he may, may have been late twenties, early thirties or something. But um, you know, he he was he was very you know safe with me, very comfortable with me, and um, we we did everything. I wanted to do everything in that one night, you know. And uh, we never hooked up again afterwards. But every time I see him at the bar he was always you know so loving to me or give me a hug you know he'd warn me about so and so in the bar you know right. stay away from that one sometimes I listened sometimes I didn't you know but you know he, he had a very good heart I liked him very much so to give us some perspective on the on the area how far away from Lewiston would the next gay bar have been okay I don't know about going north right um because you have you know you know places like Augusta, which are more central to the state, the capital, a little bit more inland. Then you'd have places like Presque Isle, you know, and I, and I think those two towns may have had gay bars or Bangor, for example, like all these other cities in upstate Maine. I think they each had a gay bar, but they would have been anywhere between one to six, seven hours away from Lewiston. Wow. So, so, so basically, 
you know, and, 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 and in the state of Maine, 90% of the state to this day is still trees. It's all pine trees, largely owned by the lumber companies, you know, and, 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 and most of the population is in the southernmost tip, you know, Kenny Bunk, Portland, Maine, York, Maine, Agunquit, Maine. And so in Portland, Maine, about, which was about 45 minutes south from Lewiston, you know, that was where you have a, a gay scene. And then, of course, in Agunquit, Maine was a summer um, resort area for the gay community going back decades to the 1920s and 30s. Um, and that was, you know, just a few towns over for me in Kennebunk where I grew up, you, you know, so I tended to gravitate, if not in Lewiston, you know, certainly during the summers when I was back home from college, you know, with my parents in Kennebunk, you know, I, I, I'd visit, you know, the gay bars and clubs in Agunquit, Maine. And, you know, I'd also, you know, you know, go to Portland sometimes, you know, where the, where the underground was located. And I had a lot of fun at the underground and um, at the club in, in Agunquit, Maine on Main Street. Now, Kennebunk board. Um, isn't that where the Bush compound is? Absolutely, on Walker's Point. You know, you know, Kenny Bunk and Kenny Bunk Port are technically two separate towns, right. um, but but we do share the same school system, um, Main School Administrative District Number Seventy One. Um, so 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 they're kind of sister towns, you know, and and you know, there's a lot of flow back and forth, and and in our lives. There's, there's no difference between the two towns, but they are technically two different towns, two different police forces, I believe, you know, two different town councils. Um, but, but yeah, Walker's Point, the, the bushes long, have their long-standing compound there. Be beautiful spread. So you mentioned Ogunquit, and um, Ogunquit is one of those anomalies that I've mentioned several times with uh, other people in conversations about gay bars. You know, we so often talk about gay bars that were in the mega cities. Uh, a couple of friends of mine just wrote a book about a thousand and one gay friendly bars and establishments that have existed in Chicago since 1921. Right. right. Um, Last Rick call. Carlin, Rick Carlin and Suki right. Delacroix. And, you know, you talk about the bars in New York City and there were so many of those. And all these these big towns, L.A., San Francisco, um, in the South, Atlanta, that had dozens, if not hundreds, of gay bars at one time. And so at one point, I started doing some research on little tiny places that had gay bars. And Ogunquit, Maine came up as one of them, because if, I'm not, if I recall correctly, it's been a while since I've looked, but Ogunquit has a population of like 2,000. It's mm -hmm. not, I mean, it's a tiny little speck of dust, but because it is a resort town, a la Fire Island or P-Town or one of those types of uh, Key West, it had a gay presence, even though the local community probably could not have supported much of a gay bar environment all year long. But because of the summer of crowds there, they certainly could when the weather was warmer. So you mentioned, um, was it the club? The, the club, that's literally what it was called, the club. Um, and that was the, the, the principal... Um, you know, gay club down in Agunquit, Maine. And, 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 the, and the thing about Agunquit, you know, it, it was an artist colony going back to like the 1920s. And I think that's where it first started to become um, kind of a gay enclave as well, because the artistic community, the creative community always, you know, was very accepting of the gay community and who, who meant many times also were, were the artists themselves. And, and so over the decades, it just gradually became, you know, a summer resort for the gay community. And what was really nice about Agunquit is, is I, I think it's fair to make comparisons to, you know, like Fire Island or P-Town or Key West or something, except it wasn't as much of a party town as, as those other places. This was a little bit more, I mean, it was very out and, you know, but, but it was more understated. Um, I think the guys tended to be a little bit older, um, a little bit more successful, you know, like, you know, a lot of people from Boston, for example, a lot of lawyers, executives, you know, it was definitely a very like, you know, well-heeled crowd. Um, and, you know, a lot of very successful people, you know, you know, you know, some, some may have a summer home there, or they might just go there for two, three weeks for each summer. And the, the club on Main Street, it opened up in 1980, the very year I graduated from high school. Um, and I think it just closed only in like 2004 or five or something. It's had a very good run. But it was, but it was you, know, you know, you'd look at it and you wouldn't think, oh, this is a gay club. It, it was like they're on Main Street. It looked like it could have been an, an, an old hotel or farmhouse house or something, you know, that they converted into, you know, 
like I, I think upstairs were apartments for some of the staff who worked there during the summer. And then there was like a restaurant and 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 the bar and the dance floor, you know, on the ground floor. And, and they had outdoor seating as well. But it was a really lovely spot. And um, you know, I, I just had so much fun there, met a lot of good people there. And and it was like, you know, so I was going there during the summers, you know, for 81, 82, 83, 84. Um, and met a lot of good people and and some of them who I you know stayed friends with you know all the, the last person I knew from there um, just died last year um, he was an older guy he was a law professor at Franklin Pierce um, law school and um, you know he took me under his wing you know and um, and we just had so much fun and because there are also a lot of like little gay restaurants around the area you know um, and it, it was just a kind of really idyllic experience and you know, tiny, tiny dance floor that gets so crowded, you, you couldn't, the only way you could dance would bounce up and down, you know, kind of pogo style. Um, but it was a fun place because everyone's relaxed when they're on vacation, right? You know, and, and, and they're kind of looking for a little action, you know, so people are a little bit more friendly, willing to talk to you, you know, see what happens. You know, a few times ended up in the dunes on the beach, you know, like, you know, sex under the stars with the roaring, you know, waves, you know, and the mosquitoes. <laughs> but, um, but, but it was a very, and, and, and you know, what's interesting too, because during this period, when I, when I was up at Bates, you know, going to like the sportsman or, or, or at the club during the summers, I, I mean, I know AIDS became an issue retrospectively, like in the 1983 era or whatever. But all the time I was in Maine, all the way up through 1985 until I, I went down to Washington, D.C., I had never even heard of AIDS. And, and so, I, I mean, that's how idyllic this experience was. Even though it was hitting the bigger cities and stuff, I was, we were all insulated from it up there. I, and I, um, I lived at that time in 1983. I had just moved to Atlanta in mm -hmm. January of 83. And I had lived in Nashville before that. And... Um, you know, AIDS, as you said, hit really hit the news cycle um, in about 1983. But the gay community, speaking from my personal experience and the people I knew, um, in, the, in the towns that were not New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, maybe Chicago, but other than, than that, it was like water off a duck's back. We maybe heard about it and didn't pay any attention. It did not change our um, sexual proclivity at all. It did not reduce the amount of random sex partners we had if we were so inclined. It didn't really have an impact. And I actually remember more of a turning point in um, the world of gay protest from my perspective um, with, you know, the Anita Bryant protests than I do with anything to do with AIDS at that point. It seemed to me like it was the late 80s before it really hit the smaller communities that were not, you know, as I said, in the bigger cities. Yeah, because in 19, like, I, I never, all those years in May, never once wore a condom, never even heard about the need to wear a condom, you know, and, 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 you know, you, you know, we, we were catching other things, but it was no problem. You just, you know, go to the local right. clinic and you get your shots and whatever. And, and, and that took care of it. And it was just no big deal. And because I remember up at the underground in Portland, which was a big, more traditional disco style club, you, you know, you know, they, you know, there were a lot of young guys there, you know, there must have been, you know, 100, 200, you know, young guys my age, you know, from the local university, you know, University of Southern Maine, a lot of people, you know, college kids from Lewiston or Brunswick, you know, or just the young crowd throughout the southern you know state would congregate there and i mean you know we were just playing musical chairs with each other it's just a matter of time if you if there's someone you liked you know it wasn't any big deal if you didn't meet tonight because sooner or later you knew your paths would cross again you know and it would happen and and and, and so it, it was just this really like um i i i idyllic experience you know um you know, and it, and it really wasn't until I, I moved to Washington in eighty five when all of a sudden the, the reality of AIDS was in my face, and it was like, wow, it was a kind of a wake up call. Um, Absolutely. Now you mentioned the underground in Portland. Yep. Um, is that somewhere that you went in that time frame too, or? Yes. Yeah. 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 Again, from like nineteen eighty to nineteen eighty five, um, and I remember my first time. I was still like really 
out. I mean, it's really just starting to come out uh, when, when I went to the underground for the first time. And, and again, Portland, Maine at that time had not yet been fully economically revitalized. I mean, it's a wonderful city. It's right there on the coast, right there on the water on Casco Bay. And, um, you know, just a lot of old brick buildings, um, many of which were still, you know, boarded up or closed down or something because the, the area hadn't been totally revitalized yet. But there was this one club called the Underground, um, and it was on on Spring Street, in the, literally the basement of a parking garage, you know, and to get into the basement, you know, there's kind of this sloping platform, you know, into the main entrance of the club, and you and you walk in, and it basically had two rooms. And, and so they were very smart the way they designed this. You know, the front room was kind of a, a, a traditional lounge, pretty well lit and everything with a full bar and everything. And then behind that would be the second room where, um, which was where the, the, the dance floor was located. And um, that was behind, you know, you know, double, you know, tinted doors, you know, so the, the sound was muffled behind it. And my first time there, I couldn't go, I didn't go in to that second room because um you know, when, when I was a senior in high school in 1980, I saw the movie Cruising, you know, with Al Pacino, oh. his, his descent into the leather underbelly of the New York, you know, <laughs> gate scene, you know, hunting for a serial killer on the loose, you know, and, and I don't know what was going on in my head. But I, I was so afraid to go into that room, not knowing what was going to happen. You know, I, I was thinking of, of like it was going to be like the mine shaft or something. But after my second or third visit, I went in there and it was just so ordinary. It was just a great, fabulous you know, club. Everyone having a lot of fun and dancing. And they had a, actually for the for the state, they actually had a really large dance floor, which was really great. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a big space. And what was cool about that dance floor was it was about a foot or a foot and a half elevated, you know, from from the surrounding floor, from the main floor. So if you, and, and then there's a bar rail around the entire, you know, uh, perimeter of, of the, the dance floor, you know, so you could either gawk and look at people dancing or if you were dancing and you want to like move yourself over to somebody who was looking, you know, you could kind of, you know, situate yourself well. Um, but they, they, there was a lot of great, great fun. They, they, they played a lot of uh, 80s new wave music, like, you know, Talk Talk with It's My Life, you know, or Thompson Twins, Hold Me Now. And so a, a lot of great 80s sound came out of there. And, and they actually had a DJ. They, they actually, you know, had someone with all the extended play, you know, um, you know, versions of everything. And back in the day when it was all still vinyl and, and, and they, they just, you know, people would just dance all night long. Places up there in Maine, they close a little early, like 1 a.m., you know, but, you know, Portland did have an after hours place too, right on the water. But, you know, you, you, you I, I was young then, so I was, you know, ready to go home with whoever I met. So, you know. Now, the underground logo, which I've seen and I've put up on the, um, on the screen here, the underground logo kind of reminds me of, of the um, London Underground, you know, like yes. with, it has that, that kind of, um, subway logo look to it uh which is kind of cool now am i mistaken or did the underground evolve into being another gay bar after underground? yes this was after i left the state um you know during my years there it was always the underground but my understanding at some point it became a club called sticks s-t-y-x-x um, and, and, and again, I, I think that again, only recently closed, like all, all these places, like they had good runs, like, you know, the sportsman, um, you know, the, the club, you know, the underground slash sticks, you know, that they all continuously operated under one name or another, um, well into like the, the, the two thousands when the, when the gay bar scene just inexplicably died, which I still can't fully wrap my head around, but. Yeah. Isn't there another one up there too called, is it? Blackstones or something? Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I've been to Blackstones. All right. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it's funny that you mentioned that, because and that's a good neighborhood bar. That, that's that Blackstones, that, that's on, like, Congress Street. Um, and, and, and I have been up there over the years, um, you know, going back when my parents still lived in Maine. You know, I'd, I'd go back and visit. And, you know, I, I think I actually was, I think that may have been open even in the early 80s, because I remember meeting John Preston. He was like a an S&M, you know, erotica writer. Right. And I actually met him one night. We actually spent, um, there, there, there's also a, uh, a, 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 a um, hot tub club, you know, not gay, but, you know, gay people, of course, would rent the hot tubs at this place. And, and he, he and I spent a few hours in a hot tub there on Exchange Street in Portland, Maine. But I think I met him at Blackstone's. 
cool. Yeah, he was he was an intense guy. Really smart, really intense. And and a, and a phenomenal writer. I, I mean, he, he was an early activist, early queer writer. And I mean, and it's a shame he ended up dying, you know. So after you spent about five years in a, what most people would consider a very conservative uh, New England area <laughs> in Maine, you, um, you slither down to our nation's capital, which was quite the polar opposite. All right. Uh, both racially. Yes. And politically. Yes. Uh, I remember being in, uh, in D.C. many times in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. And um, it's fun, isn't it? There was a lot of fun. And yep. some of my most memorable uh, nightclub experiences were there. Yeah. Uh, um, but it was a very strange alternate universe it was different mm-hmm. than almost anywhere and the one thing that stuck out to me and you can tell me if this was your experience but when i visited dc i almost felt like you had to make up a backstory because people were not interested in how hot you were or how sexually desirable you were they wanted to know what major politician you worked for and how much money you made like that seemed to be the focal point of almost half the population there when you were out in the bars was oh you work for you you're on the White House staff great uh, let's let's go have sex yeah um, th- th- there was a lot of that, that oh can, can I just backtrack for two quick seconds about Maine sure. yes it was very it's a conservative New England town right New New, New England you know uh, area but but not conservative like Bible Belt conservative right. it was conservative more in like the the, the Bush family conservative right. and, and 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 Maine tended to have it was very quiet, very reserved. And even, but even if they didn't approve of something, they left it alone because there's a solid libertarian streak in Maine, which is kind of live and let live. They let them live, have their life. If they're not bothering no one, we may not approve, but let it be, you know, so that, so, so, so it was a very comfortable conservative yeah. where, you know, unlike, you know, you didn't have Jerry Falwell types protesting outside the bar saying, shut this place down. So I just wanted to like prop up Maine a little bit there. But you're, but you're right about D.C. Um, it, it was kind of a surreal experience because, you know, it, it, it was all about it was almost like sex with a mission. You know, it, it, it was like, you know, every, everything there was gained somehow. And what was funny is because on the one hand, and this was during the 80s, like, you know, from 80, when I was there from 85 to 1990, um, and this was peak Reaganism, this was peak moral majority, you know, and, and, there, and, 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 but you still had all these Republican operatives who were gay and everything, you know, and which resulted in a few scandals some prostitution scandals, some national security you know, potential compromises, you know, you know, and, 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 and yet even though during the day, everything would be so like, and then I was going to law school here and, 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 and that's why I went to DC because, you know, I, I wanted a more traditional big city experience. Like I could have gone to the university of Southern Maine law school, you know, but I knew I wanted to get out of the state. I wanted a much more vibrant, you know, you know, social life. Um, and DC would certainly provide that opportunity. And it, what was weird, though, because, I mean, so it was the big preppy era, too. Everybody had, you know, the Oxford shirts or, or the, you know, the eyes on Lacoste or the alligator, you know, collars popped, you know. So it was all very conservative and the chinos and the khakis and, and, and the madras shorts and everything. And so it was all very conservative and preppy. But, you know, once you got over that initial veneer and once it became dark out, it was it was the most decadent place I have ever been in my life, you know, you know, and I, I mean, for example, like, you know, even like, you know, they had a lot of strip clubs and the thing about DC is, and Maine had no strip clubs, you know, right. and, and in DC, they, they not only had the gay strip clubs, but I mean, it was full naked, you know, it's not like they were wearing G strings. They, they was full naked you know, I, strippers. I remember one um, would have been in the eighties that I went to there. I believe it might have been called the Chesapeake House. Yep, the Chesapeake um, House. And it was not a huge bar, but they had the, the strippers there. And they would actually climb up on the, the bar. Mm-hmm. You know, people lined up and sitting at bar stools, and they were climbing right up on top of the bar next to your drink. Uh, dancing, and you could touch. Yeah, and start strutting their stuff. And yep. occasionally they would have 
a night where they would have a like an amateur night and actually patrons from the bar who felt like they should be strippers would get up there and strip naked too so mm -hmm. it was it was very different than a lot of other cities which had either very stringent no touch laws or right. you know it was it was a completely different environment and there and, were so and many then, go ahead there's so many bars there that were just incredibly memorable i don't yes. know what was your what was your first bar you know experience memory in dc in dc i think it was it wasn't chesapeake house i i i, I gravitated towards that more in the second half of, of, of my time there um i think my first gay bars in dc um you know there, there were a couple of really gay areas in dc and one of them was the real preppy neighborhood it was it was the dupont circle area you know it was like 17th street p street you know p street had a connecting bridge to georgetown um and it was about as gay and preppy you know when when, when, when you hear today people talk about you know the gay white cis privileged male they're talking about dupont circle and it was it was but but again it all a lot of really nice you know they, they they had the gay bars there the gay restaurants you know and a lot of outdoor seating so you could people watch and cruise and everything you know they had the gay sex toy shop right there uh the gay bookstore lambda books i think was right yeah. there Right. And, and so, you know, and, and, and your local Safeway was right there. Um, so, so everything was all together. But, and I think my first two gay bars there predominantly were um, that, that I went to a lot. Were, were, there were two. One was called JR's um, and the other was called Badlands, which we called Sadlands. Um, that was what, what we called it. But we went there a lot, sad as it was. Um, and JR's was, was always packed. It was a very popular um, happy hour place, like people getting out of work. That's where you'd hang out, but but they, but they would stay there. I mean, it was packed till closing time, and I can't I, I can't even remember what time they closed in D.C. Maybe it was two a.m. Um, I because I, I know it was longer than Maine, but it certainly wasn't like the way it was in New York. Um, but but so I think maybe it was two a.m. But JRs would be packed from opening to closing, and um, you know, again, a rel relatively small place. I you know, and um, but but people were very friendly. You know, you would go, you know, because as you were saying earlier about the connection between your career and sex in D.C., you, you know, you go to a bar to network as much as anything, you know, and um, and, then, and if you can have sex on top of it, better yet, you know. And so there was a lot of that going on. And, and JR's was a real central zone for, for a, lo a lot of that. And I think that's still existing to this day, JR's. Yeah, you know? I, I'm not sure if, if they're still operating in D.C., uh, I think somehow they're connected to the JRs in Dallas. Um, I'm not, I think not you sure may be if, right. I'm not sure if they had the same owners at one time or if the guy in D.C. copied the idea from the guy in, in Dallas, but there, there is one in Dallas, I know for sure. Um, and those people did spread out and have numerous bars throughout the country. They were kind of one of the first uh, gay bar franchisees or chains, um, mm -hmm. the, the Dallas group uh it's called cavin and they had bars all the all the old plantation bars that we knew of around the country were theirs yeah uh, i think i've read a few stories about you, that are you landing uh they own about 10 bars at one time did they go to orlando too yeah yeah they went to florida as well they had bars in all over texas called um mining company so it was like Montrose Mining Company and Throckmorton Mining Com Company and San Antonio Mining Company. And they all had that kind of Levi Leather Western kind of vibe to them. Mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, I've been to both JR's and Badlands in D.C. And of course... Badlands was fun though, right? Yeah, they were. Yeah. It was yeah. had the dance floor, the whole wall, mirror wall and everything. Tiny dance floor. And then the, then the steam or fog that would come out sometimes. And then you also had the mega clubs there, like um, tracks, tracks, lost and found, lost and found, lost and found was kind of a weird anomaly too, because lost and found was like this, um, this mega crowded, hot, sweaty, mm -hmm. you know, disco dance club that also had white table dining with fabulous food. Hmm. I mean, I never like ate one, there. One part of yeah, they had like. Uh, a European, you know, four-star chef or whatever in there and served awesome food. So it was mm -hmm. kind of weird if you went there earlier and ate and then later 
it was a totally different environment. It was, so, it was, but it was a great, um, a great space in DC. And this is what was interesting about the DC scene too, for me, like coming from Maine, A, that was when I, AIDS first hit, I noticed it hitting the community, but two was the drug issue. Like up in Maine, I mean, maybe I was oblivious to it, but I was pretty out and about in Maine. And I don't recall ever seeing anybody using any drugs from either marijuana, cocaine, MDMA, ecstasy, methamphetamine or any of that in Maine. But in, in, in DC, that's when I first started seeing, oh, what's this thing called ecstasy? You know, and, 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 and you know, at, at a place like, you know, even at Badlands, that tiny little dance floor, you know, people would be tripping on ecstasy. And I thought, yeah, I, 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 I get it if you're doing it, you know, the LNF, you know, or tracks or something, right. but it seemed like it'd be an awfully claustrophobic experience to be on that at, um, at Badlands, you know, and then, then Badlands had the big video bar behind the dance floor in the, in the second room yeah. with it was a big screen TV where I think, you know, the pet shop boys and domino dancing must have been playing a thousand times a night, you know, and everybody, and that, that was weird about Badlands. No one talked really in the video bar. Everyone was just staring up at the screen and which it was what I hated about video bars because they, they took away from people talking, you know. Right. Except now, you know, we don't need to talk anymore because you got your phone so you can text each other while you're watching videos. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And that's what they do at bars now. I'll see people. Like, I, I saw this one guy, like, you know, for some local mix. We don't, have, we don't have gay bars really here in Fort Myers. But, and, but some guy was, like, you know, texting. You know, and I looked over and, and I said, yeah, I saw I see you there, but you're just, like, texting. He goes, well, isn't that what you do at a bar? And I thought, apparently so. I don't, but, you know. Uh, Fort Myers used to have a couple of bars. You probably, oh, well, I'm sure you remember several of them. The bottom line was there. Um, they were open when you moved there, weren't they? Um, I, if they may have been, but you know, I, I never visited it. Like, and, and I know there's a couple of places here that are gay called like rascals is one and cruisers is another, but, um, but I don't have a car. Like I live downtown and, and I don't like the idea of like, cause I think like rascals is on a highway behind tinted glass. And it just struck me as so 1970. Now I know, I know people who tell me, Philip, you should at least check it out before you judge it because it's actually a lot of fun, you know, and a lot of good people. So I, you know, I have to get over my hang up about traveling to a bar, but I, I'm used to like neighborhood bars where you just walk out your door and yeah. there they are. Well, and there used to be one um, in Fort Myers. I'm trying to think of, I don't know the name of the street. It's just the street near downtown where um, the Red Lobster is. Isn't there a Red Lobster near downtown? I don't think so, but I might be wrong. But, it, but there, was at a, least... there was a bar there called the Office Pub. Maybe oh, I have heard. I think that's closed now. Is that um, Cleveland? Is that the street? or? I don't know. Called... Anyway. Um, there is a street called Cleveland Avenue. Anyway, they were yeah. there for a number of years. And it was a neighborhood type bar, you know, mm. dartboards and pinballs and a small mm. side show and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and it was kind of fun. I've been there a number of times. I've been to mm -hmm. the other ones too. So, so you recommend Rascals? I have. I don't remember much about Rascals. All right, all right. I don't know if it was there at the time, or all right. there was Tubby's. Uh, Tubby's had two bars: one in Cape Coral and one in Fort Myers. Um, and then there was. I know there's a Rascals, but I don't. I can't even place it. So, um, so. At, while you're in D.C., you're going to JRs, you're going to Badlands, you're going to law school, and you're kind of wetting your feet, really, in the, in the gay scene. Um, did, the, did the gay scene in D.C. actually have an impact on you moving there? Is that one of the reasons why you chose D.C.? Um, yes. Yeah, I, I, I definitely want to, like, you know, have a broader gay experience. Um, you know, I... I and I, and I also want a broader cultural experience. Um, and I, I want to kind of get, you know, it, the, the thing that was interesting was, you know, growing up in Kennebunk and then going to school in Lewiston, Maine, I, I kind of just want to cut my apron strings with my family a little bit more too. You know, I, I really wanted distance, you know, and, and, um, and, and just kind of feel fully free, you know, to, to, to kind of, you know, 
be a little bit more, um, explore a little bit of my sexuality. Like, like for example, you, you know, there is a, and the thing I liked about DC is, you know, you, you, you had that preppy gayborhood like in the DuPont Circle area, but, but then you had the downtown 9th Street area, which historically was more of the gay scene before the DuPont Circle area became so trendy, you know, and Adams Morgan and everything. And, and, and I like that kind of um, gay scene that was a little bit more on the outskirts. You know, and, and, and after, you know, 6 p.m., that whole 9th Street downtown area became almost a no man's land. In fact, you know, there's a, a famous, you know, serial killer, you know, who, who operated down there in the, like, the late 1970s, you know. And, and in fact, I think one of the managers of um, the Chesapeake House was among the victims. Um, so so I, I, and, and I think the Eagle was on that 9th Street, you know, strip, too. You know, so it, it, it was I, 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 try, I start to explore that a little bit more. And I actually became very friendly with one of the um the servers at the chesapeake house you know who who um served cocktails from the bar to take some of the tables you know that you know because in addition to the bar where the strippers were danced they also at some point built a catwalk a two-story catwalk you know you know you know with you know this you know the silver ribbons as a backdrop but you'd have the dancers going you know from level one of the catwalk climbing up the stairs to level two of the catwalk coming back around onto the bar you know so they could collect their tips you know and you know and chat people up if they wanted and it was just such a wild experience and it was just so um and it was always very safe like every time I went there, um, I but that's what I looked up about gay bars generally. They were always like relatively safe, you know. And and I, and I think in my, all the hundreds, if not thousands, of times I've been to gay bars all across the Northeast, frankly, um, maybe I saw one fight. Yeah, you know, it was it was just a real kind of, and that's what I really loved about gay culture during our years because you strike me as as my age wow. is is. People were basically very nice. People had a libertarian streak. You know, they, 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 I mean, it wasn't political. Like, no, no one really talked politics at bars. You know, it was all about, you know, being catty, you know, or being funny or being, you know, fierce, you know, or being sexy or, or, or looking to cruise or something. But, but no one talked. I mean, it, what, the world was, just wasn't nearly as political as it is today. You know, like, you know, you never asked anybody, who are you voting for? What do you think? Of, you know, we just had fun, you know. Absolutely. Now, after you spent five years in D.C. and got to explore the underbelly of the, of the gay world there, you decided you wanted to go to a bigger apple. And, yes. Uh, and relocate. <laughs> more gay. More gay, more, yes. more people, more crazy. Yeah. Yes. New York. More diversity. I'm you know, sorry? And, and more diversity. You know, I, I just want to keep broadening and broadening and broadening, you know. And that's what's so wonderful about being gay. You know, I, I, I think our lives, by definition, put us into that path of seeking greater horizons and adventures. And, and, and I, it's funny because I actually had a dear friend who I met at the club in a gunquit. Um, he was also um, my age and he was attending school in Washington, DC at George Washington University where I ended up going to law school. And so, you know, we knew each other from the club. We knew each other in Washington, DC. And then we both ended up moving to New York. So I had this one, and he ended up dying of AIDS in like 1994, um, or maybe 96. I think he died in 96. Um, and, but, but he was with me from the very beginning, you know, of, of my life as a gay man, as, as he was just a young gay guy too. And, 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 um, and so we, I shared most of my gay life and adventures in all three of these cities with him. And, and so I always had a partner in crime and, you know, so we, 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 we caused some trouble sometimes, you know. Now, New York, in New York City, um, were you living close to the village or where, what part of town did you settle in? Yeah, I lived in a few different areas. Um, when I first moved to, to New York, I lived in this area called Kipps Bay, um, which is in the 20s on the, on, on, uh, you know, in the 20s, um, like on 2nd Avenue um, and the East River area, right kind of below Murray Hill. Um, and, you know, it, it's really kind of one of the more boring areas of New York City, you know. But, of course, there was a, there, there was a gay bar, literally, that was called South Dakota. You know, and that's the thing about in New York. You know, you just throw a stone and you're going to hit a gay bar. I mean, they're everywhere. You know, so even in very 
and, and, and the thing about being gay, gay is everywhere in New York. So I, I was in one of the relatively least gay neighborhoods, but it was still gay enough to support a local neighborhood gay bar. And it was called South Dakota. And, and, and it, was a, it was a very nondescript um, neighborhood local gay bar. You know, it was, it was kind of, you know, glorified, you know, studio size. You know, it wasn't really big, you know, but it had the pool, ta- no, no dancing, you know, but it had a pool table, had pinball machines, you know, attracted an, an eclectic crowd, never really, really busy. It's more where you wanted to go just for a drink or something, you know, but if you're going to go out for the night, that's not really where you're going to go. You may end up there for a drink. You know, you may start the night for a drink there, but it really wasn't, you know, your final destination. Well, New York City has um, an interesting uh, history with gay bars. There have been so many of them there. Mm, Thousands. And as one friend of mine who lived there for a number of years, I think he may have even overlapped with you uh, some of the, I think he lived there, um, from the late nineties to like 2005 or six. But one of the things he mentions when I'm talking about gay bars with him is he said, I probably went to, you know, 75 gay bars in New York city. Mm-hmm. And I probably remember the names of five because mm-hmm. the other ones were little holes in the wall that had a cardboard sign in the window or somebody scrawled it on a piece of glass or painted it on a piece of wood. And you didn't care what the bar name was. You just knew it was the bar that was three doors down from X corner and you went in there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of them were just almost like pop-up bars, like, you know, this trend now. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody just had a case of beer and a, and a uh, bottle opener and said, oh, we're going to set up a bar here. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, now, South Dakota, obviously, was not a fabulously famous bar that, um, you know, made a huge impact on, on millions of people in New York City. But what other bars did you go to in New York that were kind of, you know, particularly memorable or important? Um, um, well, I, 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 I guess in terms of like there, there are two different kind of bars I liked. I, I, I like dance clubs and then I like, you know, just your neighborhood kind of bars. And in terms of neighborhood kind of bars, I, I ended up moving to the East Village section of New York City, um, which is kind of like, you know, historically you know some areas that would be known as alphabet city like avenue a avenue b avenue c and you know i lived on 7th street between a and b and then i lived on 10th street between first and second avenues and that was all kind of the east village nearby you know Tompkins square park um and it was a really fun area of of, of the city like i was there a lot in the 1990s and it was very um vibrant very creative you know a, a lot of kind of um um um, you know, a lot of writers, photographers, and um, just people seeking a unique New York experience. And there's one little bar there that I just adored. You know, it's probably my favorite bar of all time um, called uh, The Bar. Um, it literally was no more creative than that. Um, but but it, it really just had like wood, plywood floor. It was a total dive, total dive. I think it had been around since, um, it was on the corner of 2nd Avenue and 4th Street. I, the actual address is 68 2nd Avenue, if, I, if memory serves me right. But it was on the 2nd Avenue and 4th Street area, which had long been a queer area. I mean, since the 1950s, that place, that corner, that area had, had, had been known for, for its gay bars and gay clubs, a lot of the drag scene and everything. But this place, um, I think it opened up in 1979 or 80 or something. Total dive, um and but but a great pool table um and you know i don't think you, more than 50 people could fit in there but a great pool table a, a, a great jukebox i played a lot of the 90s you know alternative rock like you know courtney hole i mean courtney love and her band hole you know um you know four non-blondes you know uh, nirvana you know and, and, and so it, was, it wasn't your traditional gay club music it was more of a rock and roll scene like you'd sometimes have like like a lot of these like kind of like act up type guys or like some some of the artistic guys you know they the, the, the big uniform a lot of folks wearing back then were, were were black combat boots you know steel-toed combat boots you know leather jackets white t-shirt you know it's a little bit more like you know you know a little kind of butchy in a way a little more street and but but they were all like really smart intelligent you know, intellectual, creative guys. Like, you know, I'd be there one night, you know, just sitting at the bar having a drink. And I literally just look over and sitting next to me is 
director John Waters from Baltimore, you know, just kind of perched there with perfect posture. And he just looks at me, smiles, hello, <laughs> you know, and, um, but that's what would happen there. You know, it, it just attracted these really unique, you know, people. And, you know, I, I'd be there one night talking to the guy and it turns out, you know, it's Michael Cunningham, this Pulitzer Prize winning author, you know, who, who wrote The Hours, you know, and wrote Flesh and Blood and Home at the End of the World. And, and you just never would know who you were going to meet there. Um, but you wouldn't meet the people there because it's just so, so tiny, right. you know, and, and people came there to talk. That was the case in a lot of um, a lot of the gay bars in that era, no matter where they were, is that you had a melting pot of people from, you know, the recently unemployed waiter to the CEO of a multi-million dollar company. You had a limited number of options, depending upon your taste and what kind of you know, environment you like to be in. And very often you would interact with on a, on more, a broader level than, say, the mainstream community would. You know, yes. if you were straight and you went to a bar, you probably met a bunch of clones of who you were. Yes. Other insurance agents or other, you know, construction company people or whatever. But in the gay community, it was much more of a melting pot because there were democratic any options and there and you more went for what you were interested in, not for, you know, rubbing elbows with your competition. Mm -hmm. uh, and that area in particular, you mentioned Tompkins Park. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize, um, but like that's where Wigstock got it. Exactly. That's what um, Lady Bunny started Wigstock. It wasn't yeah. the Pyramid Club like right there, that little. Right there on Avenue A. Yeah. Where, yeah, where so, like RuPaul got her star and everything. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and um, I interviewed, I've interviewed Linda Simpson. Uh, yes. And she talked quite a bit about the Pyramid. Um, no. I interviewed uh, Larry T. Mm -hmm. And he talked quite a bit about moving to Atlanta with, uh, with RuPaul and uh, the Celebrity Club and all that stuff they did. So, You know, we ought to try to get on your show, I think would be fabulous for you. And I, I'm thinking this as you're talking about Pyramid Club, because you know who hung out with all of those people? It was Michael Musto. Yes, and I have asked him. Um, all right. If you know him, please feel free to prod him. But I, uh, I've asked him. I'm not sure he likes me. <laughs> and he said, well... I talk about that a lot in my blog and my um, and my stand up appearances. So mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd be giving away my act and you know by talking to you. And I'm like, well, whatever. If you decide you want to talk about it, I'm here. Right. Um, yeah. And I've done over a hundred of these already, and they're not mm -hmm. stopping anytime soon. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, New York was, and I, I've interviewed um, Michael Fazakerly. I don't know if you knew who he was. But he was the club kid photographer, the one that actually. Oh, right, went. right, right. Great he photographs. Just, he just passed away like two weeks ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. In Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. Oh. Uh, great guy. Um, so Ernie, you got his story preserved. That's the importance of what you're doing. Absolutely. Ernie Glam, yeah. I've interviewed. Yes, I saw that. Yep. He's, he's an And I'm going to interview him again. The mm -hmm. interview that I did with him was about the early years with. Um, Michael Ellig and the line, line right. and, all that. and now we're going to talk because he's still active in the New York City club scene. He still mm -hmm. lives in New York and he still parties and he still does stuff. Um, so he's last of the Mohicans. <laughs> yeah, so so I'm anxious to talk about about mm -hmm. some of that stuff with him. So you've had a pretty colorful history with with gay bars and gay scene around. And one bar I know you mentioned to me, uh, and I believe this one appears in one of your books, is the Candle Bar. Yes, the can't that and, and that was again was one of my fit because I ended up living on the Upper West Side for a while. I've lived in many neighborhoods in New York, like and 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 for a few years I lived on the Upper West Side, and the Candle Bar was a bit like the bar, um, and also a bit like South Dakota. It, it, it was on the because um and what was interesting about the Candle Bar is is again the Upper West Side was one of the traditional gay neighborhoods. But like New York was segregated, you know, in terms of the, the neighborhoods oftentimes and in terms of the gay bars, like, and, 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 you know, the, a lot of the black gay bars or Puerto Rican gay bars or Dominican gay bars, um, historically, like in the 1970s and the 1980s, you know, um, were on the Upper West Side, you know, or, 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 or the Times Square area. And there's, a, there's this one woman um, named Jenny Tobin. Um, and she had interest 
sometimes disclosed, sometimes undisclosed, in many, many of these bars, um, pr pr primarily um, servicing, you know, the, the gay people of color. And, and one of the ones in which she had an interest in, at one point, you know, no long, no long you know, uh, she got out of the gay bar scene by 1985 at the, at, the, at the latest. She had started exiting from the gay bar scene like in the early 80s. But, but one of them at one point she had interest in was the Candle Bar. And, and that had been a gay bar um, since the 1930s. Obviously she didn't run in the 1930s, um, you know, but, but uh, it, it had a long history on the Upper West Side, um, which um, for a long while, um, I mean, there's always a, a, a Jewish community on the Upper West Side, but there's also an Italian community um, historically on the Upper West Side. Um, but then when a lot of the Italian folk and a lot of the Jewish folk, you know, they kind of kind of fulfilled, you know, the American dream, moved to the suburbs. But, but a new influx of people came into that area, like a lot of, you know, Puerto Ricans, a lot of Hispanics, you know, um, a lot of Dominicans. And, um, and so for a long time, that's who lived on the Upper West Side, along with you know, the theater people, you know, um, so you had a lot of like, you know, you know, you know, white boys and girls from all over America who were coming, you know, to, to, to find their Broadway dreams. And a lot of them ended up living on the Upper West Side. So there were always a lot of gay bars that serviced everybody. And, and the Candle Bar had just this uh, great history, um, you know, and, and so the time I was going, and again, Jenny Tobin didn't uh, she got out of it like in the like by, by 19. I think she got out of the candle bar actually in 1980 or 79. Um, and then it was taken over by this gay lawyer named Robert Adder, who actually used to be her lawyer. You know, so it was kind of like, did you get out of it or not? But, you know, in any event, technically she got out of it and her lawyer, you know, took it over, who ended up dying in the early 1990s and left the joint to his sister. Um, and, and that's when I started going there, like her, his, his sister at that point um, uh, uh, owned it. But it was a wonderful bar. Um, again, had a great pool table. I mean, some of the best pool players are gay because they spent so much time in the bars and they played a lot of pool. But, you know, you know, I, I love the candle bar because it had a lot of people of color there. You know, it, it was and, and you also had old theater queens who were in their 60s and 70s. Would just sit at the bar, you know, enjoy their beer, chat with a few friends who they'd known for 20, 30 years, you know. But, you know, there were 70 and 80 year old guys at the Candle Bar just playing pool. And, and, and it was very democratic, you know, you know, maybe, maybe there's a young hustler or two there, but, you know, they, they, they knew the old queens, they're talking, you know, have a, have a good back and forth. It was, it was a real no judgment bar, which is what I liked about Candle Bar. It, it was like if you had any judgment, don't come in the doors. This is where people want to be themselves, relax, and have a few beers, play some pool, and that's it, you know, and, and, and don't cause any trouble, and you'll have a good time. Now, you touched on something when you were talking about Candlebar that has kind of been a thread that has run through the history of gay bars and certainly in some of your writings. Um, you said Jenny got out of the, uh, the Candlebar scene uh, late 70s, early 80s, and there was a whole era from the 50s till the late 70s where so many of the gay bars were not owned by gay people. They were not gay men. They were not, you know, they were outside influences. Um, the one book here, The Mafia and the Gays, you talk about um, organized crime connections to owning the different gay bars. Was that, that was true mostly in the cities. I mean, obviously in Maine, that wasn't the case. There was not mob-owned gay bars in Maine. No. You know of. But, um, but in the bigger cities, and especially in cities like New York and Chicago, that seemed to be a lot more prevalent, that there were people who had more nefarious purposes for operating gay bars than, you know, supporting the community. It was more a greed and, you know, let's, let's take what we can from this, this uh, economic pool here that's waiting to spend money somewhere. From your perspective, I know you weren't in New York at the time um, and weren't aware of what was going on when it happened, I'm sure, but from your perspective, was the Stonewall Uprising as much a um, revolt against mafia ownership of gay bars in New York City as it was against the police treatment of the patrons? 
Do you think there was a balance? It was both. The gay community was sick of them both. <laughs> we had been abused by the mob and abused by the police, and we were just sick of it all. Um, and you know, you know, because when the, when the, the, when the Stonewall was raided that night, they they, they actually were going in there. Um, and and this is pretty confirmed now, you know, by gay historians. I mean, this isn't just like you know, this is pretty much factual at this point, and it's, the, the 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 story has now been vetted you know, by just about everybody. And it, and this seems pretty certain. The police went into the Stonewall that night in 1969, looking for some stolen Wall Street bonds. Because what happened at that time, and this is how the mob was often exploiting us, they would blackmail wealthy, influential, you know, powerful gay men and compromise them to get what they wanted. And so, you know, if they knew some queen who was a Wall Street trader or executive, they would threaten to expose this person uh, as being gay unless they did what they wanted, like give us, steal some of these, because back then the bonds were, 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 were bearer bonds. If you had the physical bond, a bearer bond, you were the owner. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. So, so that bond gets stolen out of a safe in Wall Street, delivered to the mob. It's theirs, you know. And 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 so, you know, the, the NYPD had information that those bonds were being stored at the Stonewall, and that was the basis for the raid that night. Um, and now. You know, did, did they get to like humiliate a bunch of queens in the process? Sure. And that's part, and, and, and on many occasions where, where gay places raided just for the sake of harassing gays. Absolutely. You know, but, you know, but, but, but that night, you know, the, the, the NYPD went in to, to, to harass the mob. Um, and rather than the gays per se, we were just collateral harassment that night. You know, but the gay people were so sick of being exploited by the mob, were so sick of harassment by the cops, that that, 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 that oppression, that double dose of oppression had just finally percolated over and, and unleashed itself. But what's really sad, though, is, I mean, on the one hand, we, we, we saw some quick improvement with the way that the police started treating gay people and we got more political power. Um, but, you know, our fight against the mob was pretty short lived, you know, and, and, and by, you know, the, the, the early 70s, you know, because the mob, they're very smart people, you know, I mean, they're, they're very, very, very smart people. They, they, they basically just cut us into the racket at that point. You know, they said, okay, well, we'll just find some gay guy who'll be our front now. And, and this, and I want to clarify, this wasn't always the case. You know, I, I mean, there were, there were legitimate gay businesses, you know, and gay bars, gay owned bars that weren't mob tied. And sometimes they were extorted into doing what the mob wanted them to do, you know, and sometimes they were real heroes and went to the police and said, listen, this mobs are shaking me down. And the police, you know, would end up throwing the mobster in jail because they wire up the gay bar owner that catch the mobster in the act, you know, and so you'd end up, you know, um, you, you, you had some real gay heroes fighting against the mob. But by and large, the mob still owned a lot, many, many gay bars, you know, into the 70s and 80s, you know, uh, sometimes just by putting up gay fronts, you know, and so so the gay front, you know, he may on paper own 100% of it, but in reality, he may have only owned a third of it and the mob owned the other two thirds, you know, so that happened a lot. Or, but, it's not, but sometimes the mob just owned it all, you know, and, and, and they were just operating through, 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 through sheer fronts, you know, and, and, and it was mob finance, mob loan sharks, which were sophisticated, you know, financing operations run out of, you know, 18th floor office buildings, you know, and, and, and it was all seemingly legitimate on paper. It's a very sophisticated operation. So you spent a lot of time, obviously, researching that connection uh, between the mob and the gay scene. And your book is definitely worth reading. Anybody that wants to, you know, see some actual evidence and not just speculation. I mean, you cite a lot of newspaper articles and FBI files, you know, yeah, federal documents and things like that. But um, yeah, there's a lot of research in it. You've obviously written other books too, um, and you have another project that you've got coming up right now. What is the book that you're working on right now? Um, the book I'm writing uh, right now, I, I just finished up all the research for it. And so I've, I've, I've got to, you know, you know, step up and start the writing process now. Um, but it, it, it's, a, it's a really tragic case. Um, it, it involves the, the, a, a murder in Cincinnati, Ohio, 
1984, I think it was 1984, um, and they, they, the, the two guys involved would have been my age at that point, both the murderer and the, and, and the murder victim. Um, and it's, it, it's, um, you know, you know, the, 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 victim was this blue blood family from this really waspy family, you know, that had, you know, ties to the rail industry, to the insurance industry, um, and, and social register kind of people going, going back, you know, pre-revolutionary war era, you know, in this country. And he ended up, you know, hooking up at, at a bar, um, in Cincinnati with, um, with a kind of street hustler type. You know, and it just had, you know, you, you know and, and, and um, the, you know, the victim brought um, the guy home where, where he killed him. Um, and, 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 and um, you know, and it was just kind of a really tragic case because the guy who was killed, the blue blood guy that, you know, the kind of, he, 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 he was a very promising, he was very intelligent, promising artist. And, and his world was just beginning. You know, in, in fact, you know, the record that he was playing on the night that he was killed in his apartment was Bronski Beak, Small Town Boy. You know, and and and, uh, and 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 the guy who killed him was just this kind of low life, you know, gay guy, but a low life who who, who was who sadly had a very um, was very abused as a child, um, and you know, I, I kind of go through and leading how homophobia brought their past together, and and what's sad is because. Um, you know, you know, the, the, the murder ended up being executed just a few years ago by the state of Ohio. And and so there's just no way to feel good about the story. And so you think, well, why do you want to write something like that? Well, because I just want to show how both of these young men, you know, were destroyed by homophobia, ignored. For, for example, um, the murderer, you know, the, the low life, you know, kind of hustler guy, um, you know, when he was 14 years old, he ran away from an abusive home and he ended up in Key West where the kid was just surviving by selling himself to like, you know, older, wealthier gay men. And, and, you know, the, 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 the judge ended up when he was, when, when sentenced him to the death penalty said, you've been exploiting gay men all your life. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, no, this was a 14 year old kid. He wasn't exploit. He wasn't exploiting anyone. Survivor sex isn't the same as and, and he was 14, you know, but, 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 but because he did such a heinous act, killing this other guy, yeah, you know, and, and I just hate it when we simplify everything so easily. And, and so I just want to bring in a lot more of the gray. And I'm saying at the end of the day, I, my position is both of these men would be alive today if they did not grow up. Can I swear on the show? You can. Oh, okay. And I'll just say, swear this once. Both of these two men, my position is would be alive today if they did not grow up in such a fucked up world, you know, and I think society has some role in the death of both of these men, you know. I agree. And I, I agree with you on preserving the stories. Um, in the course of my research, I've, I've discovered a number of cases of either individual uh, gay on gay or uh gay hate crime murders that involve bar owners, bartenders, uh, members of the community all over the country. And it is a, you know, it's a question, do you want to bring it out and talk about it or does it tarnish the memory of our community? And in my opinion, um, it doesn't really tarnish the community because you're just showing that just like every other part of the community, we're human. And mm -hmm. You know, nobody says, well, don't talk about the murders in the straight community because that's going to make the straight people look bad. It's just part of life. It's the yes. way it is. And we're recording our history and trying to learn from it mm -hmm. and knowing the struggles that we all went through coming through, especially if you're pre, you know, 1980s on the gay scene. It was a completely different world than it is now. Mm -hmm. right. I, I really appreciate people like yourself being out there, you know, writing the books that you write. Uh, talking about the stories of the bars that you visited so that we can all preserve that and save it for the future. And people 10, 20, 50 years from now can still hear these stories because the people before us did a fairly poor job of recording our gay bar history from, you know, from our early days and the days before. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you so much, Philip, for being on the show and for telling us your stories. I appreciate it. I, I like the work that you do. I respect it very much. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. That concludes another episode of the Gay Archive Show. For more information about this episode or to find more episodes, 
visit gaybarchives.com.